Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for tuning in to the three questions uh, again. I hope this is again. And if it's uh, your first time, you're in for a good one because um, my guest today is Max Brooks, is the author of um, all those all that crazy zombie shit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's how I refer to it. So very well said. Yeah, but you're a, you're a writer. You, you worked on SNL for a while. And now now you pretty much just write books, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much a novelist. I divide my time between writing books and my two think tanks that I'm a non-resident fellow at. Which are? I don't know anybody in a think tank. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, well, the first one is a civilian think tank in Washington, D.C. It's the Atlantic Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. And the other one is a military think tank uh, called the Modern War Institute at West Point. And so both of those are focused on national security and that those that's my night job. And why? And I mean, did you are you schooled for that sort of thing? Apparently I am. Uh, I did not know this when many years ago, my my book World War Z was chosen by the president of the United States Naval War College to be on its reading list. And when they called me and asked me to speak. Uh, I said, you know, are you sure you got the right guy? And I think if you that lecture is on YouTube, and that's how I open. I say, is there a is there a lieutenant commander Max Brooks wandering around Comic Con saying, wait a minute, I, I think there's a problem. <laughs> but you know what I do in my writing is I present a fictional threat, and I attack it with real world solutions. Yeah, which requires years of research into how this world really works, and so even though the, the problems may be fictional, zombies are in, in the new book, Bigfoot, uh, I have an understanding on, on threat management and, and crisis and disasters. And so that's why I work with the military because I can speak their language. Yeah. And that was just purely from having done research uh, with what I think is just, a, you know, like it, it, at the time, you know, as you, as you did the, it was three books, right? It was... The How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. Yeah, first one was the Zombie Survival Guide, and then there was World War Z. And now the new one is Devolution. Well, but there were two versions. Weren't there like two versions of the of the first book? Well, the 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 first book, Zombie Survival Guide, I had I had some recorded attacks in the back that we uh, we adapted to a comic book. So Oh, oh, I see. Okay. 
Um, yeah, because I just was, uh, to me, it was just so fascinating. Both of those books. I mean, the first book, The How to Survive a Zombie Attack, was more comic. I mean, it was more sort of overtly comic, don't you think? Or, or not? Not to me. You know, that was the funny part. <laughs> if, if there was a joke, the joke was on me. Yeah. Because they tried to position it because no one had ever written a book like that. So they yeah. thought, well, this guy can't possibly be as much of a nerd and a loser as this book is. He mu- it must be tongue in cheek. Yeah. So they positioned it as Mel Brooks Jr. Uh, makes fun of zombie nerds. Yeah. And rightfully so. People hated it until I got in front of it and said, no, no, no. I actually am that much of a, a loser and a nerd. And I'm really, yeah. really into this stuff. Yeah, because you look into every nook and cranny of of the possibility of this purely fictional, like, the you know, this purely yeah. fictional sort of uh, phenomenon, you know. And I mean, where I guess maybe it was George Romero that sort of, I mean, or maybe going back to voodoo, like who sort of made up the rules, you know, like the like the way a vampire has garlic and a stake through the heart, you know, like there are the zombie rules that they're slow moving and they eat brains and all this stuff. That's and, Romero. Uh, Romero, yeah. basically, he took the old voodoo zombie, threw it away. Actually, a big nerd moment. Romero invented something completely new, which was never called a zombie. It was the original title was Night of the Flesh Eaters. And it had nothing oh, wow. to do with zombies or voodoo. And then they changed the title at the last minute, called it Night of the Living Dead. And they only used the word zombie in once in his second movie, Dawn of the Dead. And that's it. Huh. So r- wow. really, we we have ruined the word. Yeah, yeah. And and then, well, but you were you were obsessed enough with this topic to go through to another book, uh, World War Z, which is fantastic read. Really, really just... Just really, it's it really is like you sat down and thought, okay, seriously, what would it be like, and what could we do? And yeah, you know, well, because, just like the, yeah, you're just the chapter, just that you devoted a chapter about where dogs and zombies would intersect. I mean, it was just so, it's just such a particular obsessive kind of focus on this one topic. And I just, I mean, why, why so much zombies? You know, I think for me, zombies are a great way of studying how the world could fall apart because most monster movies, you have to go find them. And as far as I'm concerned, that's your ass. And and the horror films that you and I grew up with, remember, it was it was a group of horny teenagers and a token black guy. And they always made a bad decision. Oh, hey, you hear about like the summer camp? And there was like that guy that killed everyone. We should like totally go. Yeah, and yeah. I would watch these movies and I'd say, I have no sympathy for you. Yes. There's a giant shark in the water. Don't go in the water. Yeah, yeah. Whereas zombies, as I started to really think about if there were really zombies, how would I survive? I realized, oh my God, I could die without ever having seen a zombie. I would die of dehydration, malnutrition, getting an infection. What happens when the toilets don't flush and all that yeah. toxic poo piles up? And I realized I'm really talking about a, a mega disaster or yeah. a war. And so that has always fascinated me, is, is sort of what happens when this amazing bubble called the first world suddenly pops. Yeah. And we're kind of, well, I mean, we're kind of seeing a little bit of that now. I mean, these are pretty unprecedented times. I mean, I, you know, you can go back to 
the whatever 19 I 17 is that what it was the, the 1918 the influence 18, of pandemic yeah. 1918 so i mean that's that's the closest analog we have i mean sars doesn't count uh ebola doesn't count it did not shut down the world the way this has no no it really it really didn't uh but you know the closest we came to was when we were young when there was aids and there's still no cure we had to change our culture we had to go yeah. from free love to safe sex. And yeah. as, a, as a teenager, you know, sort of coming of age, I'm proud to say that I did my part uh, by not getting laid. Yes. Good job. Congratulations. I was on this. I was in the same boat. I was, you know, I was an incel before See, we, it was cool. We flattened the curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did it. Yeah. No, but I, well, I mean, I do remember that being a terrifying time about, especially, and I mean, and I was young and it, it you know, you're, you're coming into your, you know, into your sexual adulthood and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, now it can kill you. I mean, and not just because there's an axe-wielding murderer at a summer camp, it's, you know. Oh my God, yes. Well, we remember it was like, you know, the generation before us got, well, kids, you're having these special new feelings. Yeah. And that's okay. Not us. We got kids, these special new feelings are deadly. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. if you, if, with us, we, we had puberty in the midst of the great panic where it was yeah. just like, if you, if you kiss a girl's hand, you got AIDS. It was just <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, have you been talking with your think tanks about, I mean, has there, as obviously I imagine COVID-19 has been a big topic of discussion. Oh my God. That's, that's all it is. We just did a, we just did a big webinar yesterday about germ yeah. warfare. I mean, if you really want a horror story, the fact that while most people are looking at this pandemic saying, oh, my God, this is so terrible, there are people looking at it saying, wait a minute, this tiny little microbe shut down planet Earth. I want to bottle this stuff. So we we have to be careful, you know, we have to be mindful that germs can be weapons. Uh, I came out with a comic book a couple of years ago about that, about germ warfare, Uh, really nasty stuff. So. Yeah, we're in the national security world. That is very much on our minds. Now, let's let's keep on current topics because you sort of or you know, what, let's we'll come back to it at the end because I was I, I was going to say why how did you go from zombie to uh to Sasquatch? But we'll oh, talk yeah. about that later. We'll talk about that more towards the end. Cuz sure. I want to um I mean, you have the uh well, you know, you you're you're the the child of famous people. And I imagine that's, you know, that creates a unique perspective of you on life because you're like you you said, you know, when your book came out, you were Mel Brooks Jr. Uh, you know. Right. That's how they um, tried to position it and, and yeah. it was a big flop. And rightfully so. Yeah, and I mean and I mean is it what's it like? I mean, generally speaking, I imagine it's pretty wonderful to have a great person like your dad as your dad, but I, I I mean, just in terms of your own identity and forging it separate, what kind of challenges does that present? You know, I I think in the long run, it was a very good thing Yeah, because in the, in, in the short term, it was tough, but it forced me to think about who I was and what was my identity, what, what I wanted out of life, which a lot of young people really don't think about. A lot of young people just 
you know, you float through your teens and your twenties and you sort of life lives you. And eventually maybe you find your level, but when you grow up, even as a little kid and people are trying to categorize you in relation to your parents, you have to form your own identity literally as a defense mechanism. You got to figure yeah. out very quickly. This is, this is who I am. This is what I want. So people don't use me. And, yeah. uh, and that, so in the long term, turned out to be a great thing. I mean, we yeah. talk about the wonderfulness. The wonderfulness was not from my parents' fame. It was from their generation. Because I'm Gen X, but I have World War II parents. Yeah. Which is pretty freaking cool to have parents that grew up with the kind of values that we only read about. Uh, yeah. My dad was in World War II. His brothers in the war. Every, all his friends. You know, uh, th- there was, you want to talk about Hollywood being turned upside down. Uh, there was there was a woman, her name, she's still alive, her name is Julian Griffin. She's Merv Griffin's ex-wife. And yeah. she had used to have a house up in the hills, up in the, up on Mulholland. And if you were famous from 1975 to 1985, that's where you went every Sunday to play tennis. And mm. so there I am, I'm a little kid, me and Dom DeLuise's kid, David, you know, we're playing $6 million man on the, on the front lawn. And on the tennis court yeah. is literally the $6 million man. <laughs> But when when you're off the tennis court, you get all these famous people. My dad, Carl Reiner, Gene Wilder, Alan Alda. Uh, what you d- got was a group of immigrants to this strange new country of Southern California, all trying to figure out their lives. Yeah. So the conversations were all about uh, where do you find a good dentist? Uh, where do you service your car? Hey, my kid's got this thing brand new. It's called dyslexia. Does anybody know where he can get tutored? That, those are the kind of things. And this come from parents who grew up in the Depression. Yeah. So I actually had a very grounded, I don't want to say mundane, but very down to earth yeah. upbringing. And I, well, and yeah, and there is a support structure, like you said, of, well, those are all primarily New York people. Those are all, I believe, all Jewish people. Uh, and they kind of, then they kind of, you know, did have to sort of, look to each other to figure this, this new place out, you know, especially they this really place, did. this place that um, was pretty anti-Semitic. You know, everybody talks about how, you know, I mean, the, you know, the cliched, horrible statement about the Jews run Hollywood and like, yeah, but you know, against, <laughs> against opposition, they sort of ended up, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, the, the Jews ran Hollywood because, uh, this is what my what I learned later from my dad and all his friends. The Jews ran Hollywood because nobody else would let them in. Yeah. All all the traditional businesses, the big businesses, corporate America, those doors were closed. There were limits to how far uh, a Hebrew could rise yeah. at Ford or something or someplace like that. Heavy industry, U.S. Steel. Yeah. So because a lot of Jews were silly entertainers. They came out west where the weather was good, where you could shoot outdoors. Yeah. And they took this weird new invention called film, and they took their vaudeville heritage, and they invented movies. Yeah. And that was that was a place where nobody got in the way because there wasn't that much money yet. Right. So nobody, wa- nobody wanted to take it from them. Right. And nobody understood what the hell it was or what the, you know, what the possibilities involved were. I mean, you really did have people coming here. Who like I, I there was just like I I don't I always remember in the movie Ragtime 
Oh you, God, I love that movie. Where there's and I I can't remember who it is, but there's it's Manny Patinkin. Yeah, Manny Patinkin. He's just kind of a Jewish immigrant, and then yep. you see him a few scenes later, and he's a famous film director, just yes. based on on salesmanship and on yep. believing in himself, and just kind of going like, oh yeah, I can do that. I know I can tell a story. I, I grasp this medium, and uh, you know, and I'm sure that's exactly what it was. Yeah, it wasn't a real job. Yeah, it wasn't. You know, that's why, you know, guys like us, we look back at the golden age of television and we think, oh, my God, it's so good. Yeah. It's so funny. It's because if you went into show business as a a television writer, say, in the 50s or 60s, you had to really want it because there was no prestige. You didn't get paid a lot. I went to school with a girl whose dad wrote for I Love Lucy, Mm -hmm. never got residuals before residuals. Wow. So if you went and wrote jokes for somebody... That was that was your passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't getting rich doing it, you know. No, no. There, there were there were there were no clubs at Harvard. Yeah, that, that, yeah. You know. Yeah. Groomed you for show business. Right. Exactly. Now, um, are you an, you're an only child? I'm an only half child. My dad's got three kids from his first marriage, but I grew up alone. I, th- I that see. was his new his first marriage, New York. I grew up in Southern California. Me, my dad, and my mom, and and. I'm, I know my siblings, obviously we're good friends. My, my older brother's kind of my best friend. So, but we didn't all grow up in the same house. I see. And, and they were older too. I mean, your dad had already had sort of a complete family and your mom hadn't had any kids at that point, right? Yeah. No, by, by the time my dad met my mom, uh, those kids were out of the house and, and my dad didn't have a pot to piss in. So my mom took care of him for many, many years. The house I grew up in was my mother's she oh, wow. she she did a movie she was deeply ashamed of called the hindenburg uh-huh <laughs> but she was very very smart because she said i want this house we've been renting it for a year i want to buy it what do i do okay movie i'll do it and now i have a place where i can raise my son oh uh, that was the deal i'll do this movie if you pay if you buy me this house well she she looked at how much they were how much they were asking for the house yeah and she looked at how much they were offering for the hindenburg and she said okay uh <laughs> this is this isn't exactly one of my finest moments as an actress but i'll i'll get a house out of this yeah it's it's what you do i mean there's been plenty of plenty of things that i've done that i certainly aren't close to my heart but i think like that's four car payments. You know, I yeah. mean, just like little one-off things. It's like, I can't say no to four car payments, you know, no, or something no, you, that t- takes an hour or whatever, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta live. And you know, my, the, uh, you talk about the wonderfulness, what I was very grateful uh, from with my parents was they always led me to believe that show business is fickle. Yeah. You know, you've got to make your nut while you can, because one day it will just go away. Oh, absolutely. I was raised on these stories of these Hollywood legends who ended up in dire poverty. And I was like, Mom, why? Why is that? And she said, because they always thought that they would continue to live at a certain level. Yeah. So they spent at that level while the income went away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very basic, uh, good economic lesson that you're, you're lucky to have learned uh, from your folks. Well, you know what's so fascinating, Andy, is, and you as a comedian understand this, I think better than anyone, nobody is writing articles about this. No one in the Wall Street Journal is talking about the economics of the internet and what it has done for comedy. Because back in the day, when you were coming up in the 90s, the goal was to do as many road gigs as possible to get yourself a TV show. 
And then that TV show would go on basic cable and syndication and boom, you were golden for the next three generations. Yeah. Well, now with streaming, that money's gone. Yeah. The, the syndication, basic cable. No. And so now it's flipped. The TV show is supposed to be an advertisement for your road gigs. Yeah. So you can charge more. And now because right. of COVID-19, the road gigs are gone. So are what gone, is this going yeah. to do to the institution of comedy? I know. And how many people, uh, you know, <laughs> it's going to, you know, there's going to, you're going to, I mean, one could make the case that it's not that big a loss, but there's, we're, we're going to come through the other end of this with people not being in comedy anymore because they just couldn't do it. You know, they had to, they had to, you know, go ahead and get that job, get that day job, or just, you know, go back to school or we focus on the top tier. We focus on the comedians who've already made it. But what about the guys and girls who are grinding away right now? Yeah. Who who have to live on the road, who have to make yeah. their living on the road. They're doing Zoom nights. They're do, you know, they're yeah. they're zooming comedy on online. It's you know, it's it's I crazy. I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm old because I would I the energy that it would take to keep doing this would be is just gotta be Oh, it's huge. brutal. You know, it, it's it's changed everything. It's changed how my dad makes a living because he's yeah. still working, 93 years old, still working. But he does a lot of personal appearances, evening with Mel Brooks. Yeah. Can't do that anymore. Right. And he writes musicals instead of movies now. Can't do those anymore. Yeah. Uh, with me, I'm supposed to have a book coming out in three weeks, and I've made my career. We talked earlier about sort of me having to invent myself yeah. as, as Max Brooks. Well, I did that by going to Comic-Cons. Yeah. You know, by giving talks, by answering questions, by introducing myself to this community and making fans one handshake and picture at a time. Yeah. And I don't see a safe economic way to have Comic-Cons right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. No. You, how, how do you social? You can't socially distant. The only no. way that a Comic-Con works is cramming people in shoulder yeah. to shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't. Yeah, it just. It, and And also, too, I mean. It's it's among the most crowded thing I've ever been to. So it's it does it, there's too many people. There's no way you there isn't enough enough no. of an area to get six feet between all the people that want to go to that thing unless oh, you no. hold you know hold it in Death Valley or something. Oh well, I, I mean that's the thing is my my when I would go to comic cons I had a strict almost Buddhist regiment which was do every biological function that is necessary to human survival. Before getting on the Comic Con floor, because once yeah. you squeeze into that autograph booth, you yeah. ain't getting out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. get it all out now. Empty your body of everything because <laughs> you're stuck for eight hours. Now, as a, as a as sort of a professional worrier, if I must say, because that's yeah. in a way, you know, I mean, like you said, it's it's risk management. That's about worrying. That's about foreseeing danger. Were you worried at that time of like, or have you been a germ? a germ phobic kind of person or no, I was, I was no more germ phobic than, than anybody should be. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, I mean, I always sort of washed my hands when you get on a plane and you touch surfaces and you touch your face. The thing is I always knew about all this stuff Yeah, because I was so lucky because my mother, once again, show business, you know, the world wanted to see her as Mrs. Robinson. She was a closet scientist. Oh, really? Her favorite book was something called the microbe hunters. Yeah. The, the, the history of people who discovered germs. Yeah. So I knew about this. So flash forward, 2001, Anthrax at 30 Rock when I was a new writer for oh, SNL. Right. I was there too, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that's you, we remember when the president of NBC went floor to floor to tell us all he was like, see Everett Coop with AIDS, you know, yeah. here's, here's anthrax and here's how you can get it and not get it. And here's what yeah. you do if you have it. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I already knew this because of my mom, but, and that knowledge helped me stay calm. And that's what I do with my writing. It's people ask me, you know, is writing about this stuff freak you out? It doesn't. I'm already freaked out. Yeah. It's the the learning about it and the writing about it totally calms me down. Mm-hmm. Were you, uh, were you an anxious child? Like, did your folks have to kind of deal with you as an anxious child? Oh, well, I had to also deal with them as anxious parents. Oh, really? Are they anxious people? Well, they weren't, but this world sure made them. Because remember, yeah. you're, they're, they're World War II generation, and they didn't know sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So that was all scary to them. Plus, they got really famous just at a time when the public started to turn on celebrities. Yeah. It wasn't like the 40s where you sort of waved at Clark Gable from a distance. Right. It was like John Lennon getting shot by a guy who loved him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and we had, we had incidents, uh, Rob Reiner's, I, I don't know if he was married to Penny Marshall or, uh, I can't remember, but I think she was held at gunpoint in her house. That was a big deal. Oh, wow. It was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a time when Dom DeLuise was doing a gig in Vegas and my friend David was really sick. I mean, he had a fever of a hundred and God knows what, and Dom was carrying him through the lobby, trying to get him to a cab to the emergency room. And someone got in his way and said, hey, you're Dom DeLuise. You're really funny. Give me an autograph. And Dom's like, look, my kid's really sick. I got to go. And he goes, what? What? You're too good for me? Listen, yeah, I'm yeah. your public. I made you and I can break you. Yeah. This this is the the entitlement. And this is what my parents were coping with. And it was, it was very scary to them because they had no basis of, of understanding. Right. Does it affect a change in their lives? Do they end up kind of being homebodies? Do they, do, you know, or, or. No, that's the thing. That's what, God, I'm so grateful to them because they lived their lives, Yeah. but they lived it smartly. It was, it was the kind of thing where they went out all the time. Yeah. Uh, and they traveled, but they went out and traveled with a group of close friends that they trusted. I see. They never went to parties because you never knew who was going to be there and you never knew what was going to happen. And my mother said to me, never, ever take your picture with someone you don't know, because you don't know if that picture is going to end up on the cover of the National Enquirer. Right. Exactly. And yeah, with you, with the, you know, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan or something. Yeah, like that. because people yeah. would always try to take pictures with my parents and they would say, no, 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 I'm sorry. You know, because they didn't know where that was going to end up. Yeah. And so they had friends, they saw the world, but they did it very consciously. Now, were your folks as, I mean, you know, I mean, your mom was a film actress. Your dad was at that time making movies. Um, Were they home a lot? I mean, did you get to see them? Did they, did they trade off? I mean, how did that work? Yeah. Oh God, they were so great because uh, my dad was home because he shot in LA. This was back in the day when you didn't have to shoot on location. Right. So he was home every night, uh, 7.30, uh, home for dinner. Uh, My mother, God bless her, my mother read to me every night. And then when she had to go do a shoot, she would finish the book on an audio cassette and play it. So I would play it every night going to bed. So either in the flesh or on an audio cassette, my mother would read a story to me. Oh, wow. So very routine. And my mother organized everything around how to keep a routine in the family. It's like 
we bought a little shack in Fire Island off the coast of New York yeah. when I was a kid. My mother bought two of them. So then her sisters could come out. And so there would always be extended family. Yeah, yeah. That that was always important. And so yeah. there was, yeah, there was a lot of routine. This is the crazy thing. You know, people always assume that somehow having famous parents makes me Tatum O'Neill. <laughs> yeah. No, I th- yeah, well, I mean, well, then, you know, uh, the odds are, I, I, well, I wonder, I wonder, you know, you just hear about the, about the problematic kids of famous people, you know, but I, I do think it, I do think it's a unique kind of pressure to put on, to put on a kid, you know, on a little kid to have their parents be known so much. And, you know, yeah, I think everybody's it, got, everybody's got something and yeah. you just have to develop coping mechanisms. Right. You know, so my right. co- my coping mechanism is very much like my parents is that I don't have a huge group of friends, but the friends I have, I trust very much. And yeah. my core group of friends are the ones that I made in junior high school. They're, they're still right. my buddies. What town What town did you live in when you lived? I mean, you grew up here in L.A., yeah? Yeah, I grew up in Hill Country initially, in the hills of okay. Beverly. I see. Uh, I, so Beverly Hills up until I was about 12. Once again, my mother moved us around according to what my needs were. She said, well, this kid's got dyslexia. He's also very artistic. There's a new high school called Crossroads in Santa yeah. Monica. So we're going to move to Santa Monica so he doesn't have to spend hours a day in the car commuting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was always very conscious about health. You know, the air quality was better in Santa Monica back then when they had smog alerts. So from yeah. 12 to 18, Santa Monica. Yeah, that I mean, when I first came to L.A., it was San, that was one of the selling points of Santa Monica because the yeah. air is a lot better. The closer you are to the ocean, the the cleaner the air is. So, yeah, that was, you know, it's a little better now. It, now, oh, when, oh, yeah. when were when were you diagnosed with the dyslexia? When did they figure it out? Little kid, little kid. I mean, that yeah. was actually one of the downsides of having famous parents was not only did the teachers back then not understand what dyslexia was. Some of them assumed because my parents were celebrities that I was just a, a rich brat goofing off. You're right. You know, that, that I didn't. A nanny raised jerk. That yeah. Just didn't feel like working. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was the assumption that the reason I was the class clown or staring off into space was because I thought I could get away with it. Right. And so not only did my mother, I, God knows how she found out about dyslexia in like 1980 or whenever. She had me tested, had me diagnosed, and then because there were no such things as accommodations back then, she would go to my school every year, sit down with my teachers, and school them on what dyslexia was and what accommodations I needed, like you know, untimed tests or audiobooks, uh, whatever, whatever helped me get through because her attitude was the kid is working just as hard, if not harder, than the other kids, but he needs to work smart so he's not banging his head against the wall. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really, you really are hamstrung by just, you know, your your brain's processing things differently. Uh, and and I, I also read somewhere that she would get, like, all your books uh, recorded yep. for you. She, yeah. what, because she had been Annie Sullivan, I, I'm assuming it's because she was Annie Sullivan uh, in the Helen Keller movie. Yeah, the, yeah. The Miracle Worker. She had worked with the Braille Institute in L.A., and she took all my books. Just as research for the role, yeah, sort of? She yeah, went, she would go deep. She's like Daniel Day-Lewis. She'd go deep in every role. So then she took my books to the Braille Institute and had them read every single one onto audiobooks. 
Wow. And so that's how I listened to all my books. Otherwise, I never would have gotten through high school. And I do that today. That's how I survive being in a think tank because wow. I have to read a lot of books. So what I do is yeah, I, listen, yeah. you know, I listen to the book on Audible with the hard copy next to me and I underline it. Oh, I see. And and uh, and is writing, I mean, does dyslexia affect your writing much? Uh, or it, it did. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, one Once again, my mother, uh, because my penmanship was terrible. And yeah. re- remember back in the day when they they cared about the they penmanship? They insisted, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, uh, one of the things we talk about in these military think tanks a lot is obsolescence and the dangers yeah. of obsolescence. And, and we are living proof of it, remember? Because we were getting yelled at for our penmanship at a time when computers were coming in. And my yeah. mother saw right past that. And she, she said, penmanship is bullshit. I'm, uh-huh. I'm going to force you in eighth grade to take a typing class because sooner or later, everybody's going to have a computer and that's how you're going to, if you want to be a writer, that's what you're going to be writing on. So you better yeah. learn how to handle it. So she forced me to take typing and a computer course. Wow. <laughs> She's pretty great, you know. Now, when you when you've got so much, you know, you've got you've got you know, you're an only child of of parents that are you know older and obviously very devoted to you. Does does it get to a point like where you think it became a little? They were overprotective, or do you ever feel that like? Did you? I mean, did they also keep you grounded and you know like and humble so that you don't you know? Because a lot of times. I mean, it does happen sometimes even with the kids that are, you know, because everything is sort of has to have a middle ground. And with kids that are really focused on, sometimes they go out into the world and they find out, oh, the focus isn't on me. And yeah. oops. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Well, uh, yes and no. As far as as far as the assumption that the world was just going to love me for me. No, my my mom and dad were both very clear about how hard show business is, about how hard any business is. Yeah. And, you know, the great part is my mother preached it and my dad modeled it. Because I also sort of became cognizant of what my father did for a living when his movie career started to sputter. Mm. So, because when he was on top of the world, you know, with Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, High Anxiety, I was just a little kid. But when I became an adolescent, those were the later movies. And so I watched this man struggle. Yeah. With bad reviews, with studios fighting over budgets, with because he remember, he also had Brooks films, which made The Elephant Man and Francis and The Fly. Right. right so right. those are the movies he got made. But I watched him pitch many projects that nobody would touch. Yeah. Uh, and this is Mel Brooks at his height. So it was very sobering to think, wow, my dad, who's this sort of icon that everybody loves, he is not omnipotent. And if I'm just going to be starting out, who the fuck am I? Right. So there was that. So I didn't have that expectation. But what I did have was we talked about my parents being maybe a little wary, cautious, physical safety of the outside world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, remember, not only was my mother warning me about the outside world, but she was warning me as an Academy Award winning actress. Yeah. So not only would she tell me what could happen to me, she would act it out. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> there, there, there was literally, I'm going to have to do a one-man show one day and put this in it. There was a, a class trip. I think I must have been about six or eight, and my mother wouldn't let me go. And I said, why, why? So she acted out how I would be kidnapped. She said, you're going to go into the, <laughs> you're going to be out. 
And a guy's getting now. Let me just preface by saying my mother grew up in the 30s. So all her characters yeah. came from black and white movies. Sure. So she said, you're going to go out and a guy's going to come to you and say, hey, hey, kid, come here. Come here. You want a Hershey bar? And then there's something in the Hershey bar that knocks you out. <laughs> so basically, I was going to get kidnapped by James Cagney. Right. Right. Or Edward G. Robinson. Yes. Yeah. A 1930s gangster was going right. to kidnap me. <laughs> wow. Well, so, I mean, do you think that that's kind of where the where the anxiety comes in? I mean, you know. I think I think the just also the anxiety in general came from the fact of you know, growing up in L.A. on the edge of the apocalypse all the time, because yeah. let me tell you, having traveled the world and having seen how systems break down, there are tribal regions in Waziristan that are better run than Los Angeles. Oh, really? I mean, just the you, you, you saw the book Ready Player One. You've heard of the book, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and in the previews the character says i wish i'd grown up in the 1980s and i think what the 1980s with aids and crack and gangs yeah, and the threat yeah. of nuclear war and my mother running into the room screaming because she thought i was watching the day after uh, yeah, yeah that 1980s let me tell you yeah I, andy i don't know where you grew up but growing up in la in the 80s it wasn't so great right right no absolutely and i mean you know and uh cocaine the the ravages of cocaine at that time you know in the early 80s oh my god we, we had drug week week at my school yeah. which yeah, yeah. which they would tell you these lies which you you know you believe they'd bring yep. in some guy and say now listen there's your brain releases a pleasure chemical on a scale of one i'll never forget this he said having your first baby would be a nine on a scale of one to ten crack brings you up to a hundred and thirty eight then crashes you just as hard. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially, I, I like that. They assign numbers to they it. They assign you know? numbers. Well, because kids believe numbers, so they tell you yeah, a number. Yeah. And also, yeah. being dyslexic, I thought, "Holy shit, I'm hanging on stone sober as it is." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, now, are you sure you're going to be in? In I mean, is it just growing up in that house that you're just like you know you're going to do something in comedy or you're going to do something? you know, in show business or be a writer of some kind is, does you ever, do you ever think like eh, maybe dentistry or oh, you know, yeah. I mean, there, a fireman, you know, there were things I wanted to do, but dyslexia kind of killed that one. I see. But when I was 12 years old, I sat down and wrote my first story and it was the yeah. only, it was the first time in my life, my ADHD went away. First time I was focused. Wow. And I never stopped. I mean, I would write every day after school. I'd come home, I'd do my, my bullshit homework, and then I would put on my old records and I'd write from nine to 11 every night. Wow. So I knew this is, whether I would ever get paid for it or not, I had no idea. And I had a, yeah. a great mentor. You, you might've heard of him, Alan Alda. Oh, wow. He taught me how to write. God bless him. He he took my novellas and he would and he would give me notes. I mean, he was not, oh, this is wonderful and you're just so great. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, he was a task master. And he would come down on How did me. how did he come to read them? Did you know that he sort of you know had uh, aspirations of teaching literature or did your dad pass him over or I I loved MASH as a kid. Yeah. And, and I knew Alan was in MASH and I sort of worshiped him from afar and he was sort of a family friend and my mom said, "Well, if you really 
because this was also when Alan had transitioned into writing and directing movies. Yeah. And so my mom said, why don't you ask him? And so she told him, I think secretly, so that yeah, he approached yeah. me and said, hey, you know, if you, uh, if you ever want to show me your writing, uh, we can talk about it. And so we back to Julian Griffin's house. He would be on the tennis court. And then he, when he was off, he would come to the tennis cottage with me. And he had my novellas marked up. And he would go to wow. town on them and tell me and say things like, listen, uh, anybody can write. But a writer is someone who rewrites. That's when you become a professional. That's It's the yeah. rewriting, the drafts. Uh, you have to research. You have to know what you're talking about. Dialogue. You have to listen to people speaking. Because anytime yeah. anyone opens their mouth, they want something. That's why humans developed language. Yeah. I never forgot these lessons. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's pretty great. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at the coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a growing? So, uh, as you're going through through uh, school, are you writing for the paper? Or are you writing for? No, I hit it. I hit it. Oh, really? Yeah, because I figured I, I in school you're only judged by two things, right? Sports or academia. Yeah. And I had no interest in sports, and I sucked ass at academia, and yeah. I thought, well, my self esteem is hanging by a thread. So I can't show anybody my writing because then I'm really in trouble. If, yeah, if they don't like if they, the stakes yeah, are too I, high. Yeah. If I suck at this, then I suck at everything. Uh, so I really did hide it from a lot of people until, until I had no choice. Yeah. I mean, I literally. Which was, what, what, what do you mean? Until it just, you, you knew that eventually, because this is going to be your life. Yeah. You've got to show people. Yes. And that's when I started. Yeah. Going out, but even, you know, even when I got the job at SNL, I knew I was miscast. I knew I was a dead man walking because I'm not a, I'm a funny guy as a defense mechanism. Uh, but I don't, as a writer, I don't live in a writer's room. I'm not a kibitzer. 
I see. And I and I knew. I knew the moment I got the job. And I also don't fit in. Because when I got yeah. the job, I knew a guy on David Letterman's show. And he said, oh, you just got SNL? He said, listen, let me tell you something. The key to survival is fitting in. So I came home. Yeah. I said to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, I said, Michelle, we're not going to last too long. So don't spend anything. <laughs> but towards the second part, I guess the second part of my first season, when I knew even if I got a second season, it was borrowed time. I had a manuscript that I had written in the 90s for myself called The Zombie Survival Guide. Yeah. And I got it to a book agent. And thank God, once I was fired from SNL, the book was already being published. So I could slide right into that. That's great. Uh, Was SNL, did you get that job right out of college? No, 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 no. Oh, my God. No, I had, I I was like uh, Legends of the Fall, but without being good looking. Uh, I, I traveled the world. I worked for the BBC and documentaries in Africa. Uh, oh, wow. I, where did you go to, where'd you go to college? Let's go back to that. Oh, where... I went to college at Pitzer in the Claremont uh-huh. and I did ROTC across the street at Claremont McKenna. Okay. Uh, till I screwed up my knees and my back. So I only did a, did a year of ROTC. Yeah. And then I did a, a, a semester, don't laugh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Oh my gosh. No, no, because I'd vacationed. Hardship. Well, that's the funny part. Yeah. Because I'd vacationed there my whole life and I realized I knew absolutely nothing about these people. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So I go there and I am essentially in an all black urban school. Yeah. And, they, and it was a dry campus. And the day one, they lined us up against the wall and yelled at us uh, about the statistics of dead and imprisoned black men. This is not the same orientation I got at Pitzer. Yeah. Where they go, well, this is your time to grow and spread your wings. (laughs) Whereas in the Virgin Islands, they were like, this is your time. And it's not about you. It's about your family. Yeah. So that that was crazy. I mean, these kids were like. And you were there for for a year? I was there for for a semester. A semester. Then I graduated. Then I went to grad school in D.C. Uh Uh-huh. And that's when I met you and Conan, but you didn't know me. Oh, really? I was in Where a, was that at? I was in a basement apartment in Georgetown, and uh, my TV only got two channels. Uh-huh. Actually, no, I think it only got one. Maybe it got one. And there were only two shows that I could watch clearly. One was The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and the other was your show. Oh, wow. And that was well, it. Those, they're often known as companion pieces. That was it. And Fresh I was, Prince I was so mad because I had to run to class, and I never got to see when Grady came back. <laughs> it's got to exist somewhere now, though. I mean, it's got to be I got to find it on YouTube because I had it. I I watched your show religiously. And that's when I thought, I don't think I'm going to be a professional comedian. Oh, really? Well, yeah, because you guys, you guys, you lived it. You breathed it. You could see it. You could tell that you were a type of animal that yeah. I wasn't. Because even as I was in film school, learning to make movies. I was still writing a novel on the side. I wasn't secretly writing sketches because as much as I enjoyed your show, I wasn't thinking someday I'm going to write for them. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, I, I can, I can see that. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, for me, it's all been kind of a weird sort of side trip anyway, because I, you know, I set out wanting to be a film actor you know, or wanting to make movies. So for being, you know, being a 
comedy broadcaster, like was not really what I set out to do. I mean, I'm glad, you know, it's, I can do it and I love doing it and I'm glad I did it, but I still kind of feel like, well, yeah, but I really just kind of wanted to be, I don't know, Ned Beatty, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, or, or somebody like oh, that, wow. or, you know, Emmett Walsh or yeah. somebody like that. Although, um, although those, the roles you did on Arrested Development uh, are amazing. Oh, thank I, you. I have to say, we, we just watched Arrested Development with my son. He just turned 15. So when I tell him I'm, I've been on this podcast, he's going to freak out. Oh, good. Good. That's nice. That's nice to hear. Well, now, you, you with the graduate school was film school, I take it. Uh, technically, it's film school, but in reality, was it what it really was, and I've used this as, as the, for many a lecture in my think tanks, is I got a graduate degree in obsolescence because I learned everything that would suddenly be obsolete three years later. Because of the because film to video, yeah, you mean the, te- yeah, the technology yeah. to digital, yeah, not just the technology, but also the marketing. You know, yeah. because in film school, I learned actual film and cutting and Steenbecks and yeah, sound. Yeah, me too. Yeah, 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 bullshit. It all went away, and yeah. now every everything at in that film school is on your iPhone, and yeah. they rammed up our ass every day about festivals, festivals, festivals. It's the only way anyone's ever going to see your movie. This is as the internet was coming out. Yeah. So I, it was, to me, it was, it was, a, it was great. It was a great life lesson because now I can take these lessons to the military and say, listen, you guys are investing in tanks and aircraft carriers when the Russians are doing cyber and counter Intel and, uh, collection cult- tampering, yeah, cultural jujitsu yeah, yeah. and it's costing yeah. them Colpex. Well, it's costing yeah. us trillions. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's that is very true, and it was the same thing with me. I went to film school, and I, there, nothing. I, I cut film. I cut sixteen millimeter film. I, you know, and even you know, video editing was oh god, a, a B back and forth on three quarter inch tape, which yeah. like just I don't even think. I think if you showed a twenty two year old a three quarter inch tape, they wouldn't even really fully understand what it was. No, you know, my first summer job in between high school and college doesn't exist anymore. I was a production assistant for Carl Reiner on one of his movies. And of my many jobs, the most important one was was running film back and forth to the lab. Yeah, yeah. You know, what what is that? That's that's like saying I was a farrier. I was horseshoeing horses. I used to do the same thing, but it was for commercials in Chicago. Yes. At the end of the Montgomery Ward shoot, I would... (laughs) My first stop would be over to the Kodak lab. Yeah. Check the gate. Check the, that was, oh yeah. 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 Well now, uh, when you get out of school, uh, where, where do you go? Do you stay in Washington? Do you come back home to LA? Do you go to New York? I, I get out of school and I go back to LA and I, I, I become the only kid in America who has to stand up to his parents and say, he doesn't want to be an actor. (laughs) <laughs> every other kid you know I, I was the reverse of that kid in goodwill hunting yeah know? yeah I, I, but it was really my mom and it and it, and it hurt did her. they really they just expected that you were going to be a performer of some kind i, I well i think my, my mom did my mom was very much about you know you're a good actor i've seen you do stage you've got the talent yeah. you've got my yeah. genes you know don't throw it all away and i remember having this big heart to heart with her and saying mom i hate it I hate yeah. not just not just the process, not just the what the craft, whatever. But but even when I would get roles, 
I would say, I don't live here. I yeah. live, I live with the words. I live with the story. I can't wait yeah. to get home and write something. Yeah. Well, you got to know what you like too. I mean, I, you know, for a while I was attempting, I mean, I just, cause uh, opportunities would come up to kind of like do some stand up, And so I thought, ah, I might as well try this. It's a yeah. good thing. It's a good skill to have and stuff. And then I just, there was one day when I just realized I don't like this. Yeah. I don't like being up here by myself. I, this is not, you know, I, I don't, I like, I like making, making comedy or but specifically also to making stories Yes, in a little, and I love the feeling of a film crew. I love the, mm-hmm. like that we're this like little band of people that pull up in a truck and unload everything and create, you know, a, a fake world and then get in the truck and go away. Yeah. You know, you, you have to love, um, you have to love it so much. You know, I, I saw this when I was on SNL and my, my office mate was a guy named Dean Edwards and he was a standup. He was a cast member, but he was also a standup and I would go with him to the clubs and my God, the nights I saw him do his act for nobody. You know, there was yeah. two, one time he did his whole act for a Chinese tourist family that didn't speak any English, but he, that oh, wow. boy, that light went on and he was there. He had to do it. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's with every artist. If, if you don't have to do it, don't do it. Yeah. Um, so how does SNL come about? I mean, are you writing sketches? Or are you? SNL came about because I, I was, tr- I was trying to write scripts. I transitioned from, from not acting to trying to be a screenwriter and that wasn't getting anywhere. And I, we had a family friend. You've heard of him, George Shapiro. Uh-huh. Andy Kaufman's manager, Seinfeld's manager, everybody's manager. He's also yeah. Carl Reiner's nephew. Uh-huh. And I think what I wanted, I wanted to meet with him and ask him the big question that all young people should ask, which is, what am I doing wrong? Because when you're young and dumb and inexperienced, you don't even know you're making mistakes. Yeah. So I I went to him and I said, listen, can I just tell you sort of what I'm doing and you can tell me how I'm screwing up and maybe point me in the right direction? And as we made small talk, he asked me where I was living and I said, in the valley. And he said, why the hell are you living in the valley? You know, you could live anywhere. I said, well, the valley is what I can afford because I was uh, making money editing commercials and doing production assistant jobs. Yeah. And, and cartoon voices. Uh-huh. And, a little, and he said to me, yeah, but you're Mel, you're Mel Brooks's kid. You can live anywhere. I said, no, Mel Brooks can live anywhere. I'm not taking any money from my parents. I'm living by the money that I make. And then that impressed him. And he said, do you write comedy? And I said, well, my agent made me write this packet of sketches for something. And he said, let me give it to Lauren Michaels. And I said, yeah, you do that. And sure enough, I get a call from George. He said, Lauren really liked it. And he would like you to fly to New York and meet with him. And I did. And wow. I got the job. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And then not a happened. It pays to know Carl Reiner's nephew. Yeah. Well, uh. but, but you know, th- that's the thing is you, you, you still have to do the work. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And oh no, I'm not. Yeah, no, nobody, you know, I'm sure that, that George Shapiro gave Lauren Michaels some other packets that Lauren didn't bother pursuing. Oh yeah. Believe me. I know. Yeah. You know, this is the thing when you're, when you're the child of famous successful or just a child of successful people. Yeah. At least I was always on the lookout for other children of successful people. Yeah. And to sort of maybe learn from them and see, well, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? And I realized, my God, you, 
is someone might be able to open the door for you, but good Lord, if you can't do the work, if you can't oh, yeah. pay your dues like everybody else, no, the nepotism peters out very, very quickly. It does. Like, yeah, you can get a job getting coffee, you know, yeah. if, if you're out through nepotism, but once you're there, uh, I mean, generally speaking, it's it it it, it does end up being a meritocracy oh, like you yeah. have to you like you do, nobody gives a shit who your dad is if when you're you know when you have to get this script done and you know and it has to be good and it has to be okayed and you know 12 different network people have to have yeah. their notes processed through it nobody gives a shit about that they just want the they just want results yes. you know and i think especially in our business i think when you're in the business of entertainment when you connect with people be it you know, music, writing, acting, whatever. If you suck, nobody cares who your yeah. parents are. If the, yeah. the public, because they're your ultimate boss, your your customers. If nobody liked what I read, nobody would buy my books. It's, yeah. it's that simple. Yeah. Um, so how does, I mean, how do you feel about getting a job on SNL? I mean, you're excited, but you're already... Were, were you a little ambivalent about going into sketch writing like that? No, no. I figured I figured I got it. Uh, and this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and I will never throw this away. And I, I never worked as hard as I did. Oh my God. The just burning myself out to try to prove myself. Uh, Was 2001 the first year? So were you just there when 9-11 hit? I got the job. 9-11 hit. It was a crazy time to be on the show. Wow. Yeah. Uh, because it was also, I attribute the rise of Jon Stewart to our failure because I saw the fork in the road. We all saw the fork in the road after 9-11. Do we embrace this new America? Do we do, we do political and current events? Yeah. Or do we stick with the safe, not controversial 1990s pop culture model? And we stuck yeah. with the latter. And America did not want that. America was hungry to try to process what was happening. Right. And remember, Bill Maher had been kicked off the air, so there was really nobody except this ingenue, this guy named yeah. John Stewart, who had just taken over Daily Show, and he roared into the gap. Yeah. And it was also the second season I was there was a really hard time to be there because the Iraq War had started, all the goodwill of 9-11 was gone. So there we were on, on one side getting beaten by Daily Show. That was every minute of every day taking on the news and also getting punched on the other side by the comedy tsunami that was Chappelle's show. Oh yeah. I mean, my God. So to have both of those two squeezing you at the same time, it was, that was a rough time. I think for everybody yeah. and Will Ferrell yeah, yeah. left. Yeah. Well, and it was also too, it was just, I remember what I remember about that time was uh, I had I had lived in LA for just a matter of months after you know having I had a brand new kid he wasn't even a year old yet um, and that nine eleven just there had already been a threat of an actor strike right. and so everyone had done all they amped up their production ramped up their production to get it all done before the writer's strike was going to stop everything. So already there had been sort of this, you know, burst of production just to s spend the budget on the year. And then 9-11 hit. And then, I mean, for me personally, but I think for a lot of people, 
it was, I didn't do anything for about 10 or 11 months. I did not, you know, make any money. I did not make a dollar. I just kind of, you know, my, the show I was on, uh, got canceled. And then I was just like waiting for the economy to recover, uh, so that people, you know, because it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's some, in some ways, entertainment is a necessary you know is like a is like a priority but in some ways we're not essential employees you know i mean when no no i mean we're and my parents were sort of very conscious of this that that i I remember when the first the oscars came back after 9 11 and tom cruise made a speech and said you know now the world has changed does that make what we do less important no it's more important Uh, Yeah, I was like, uh, it's also it's also how you use it. Yeah. You know, if you like you did with John Stewart did, if you use comedy as a way to help people think through what's happening to them, help to take away a little bit of the fear and help them process, then that's great. Then that is essential. That's that's keeping the home fires burning. But if you're just doing uh, sketches about fish genitals, which we did. Yeah, sure. Yeah, really. I mean, I think the world could have lived without fish genitals. The age of fish genitals. Yeah. Was, uh, you know. That was a great <laughs> 1995 sketch in 2001. <laughs> well, okay. Then you've got you've got the zombie manuscript. Yes. Sitting there waiting. It's your it's your uh it's your parachute out of comedy. Uh, it, it is, <laughs> it's your your yeah. safety, you know, it's your fallback. Um, and I, I, it occurs to me, I wonder, was it your first, do you think it was the, had you taken other things that were sort of anxiety provoking and that caused you to sort of look in a very systematic kind of way about like, you know, risk assessment or what, or did did just the zombie thing struck you? And well, there was, there was another monster before zombies when I was even littler that used to terrify me. And that was Bigfoot. Oh, really? That was, yeah, I, I grew up, like we said, remember Beverly Hills, I grew up in Beverly Hills. And we, the house my mother bought was this post-war ranch style home with plate glass walls, not just windows. Cause that wow. was, that was a big thing after world war two. We had the technology to make plate glass. So suddenly yeah, yeah. homes, especially in Southern California, you can still find these houses. Uh, they, even like, Lower middle class houses were suddenly being built with these huge walls of glass because you could. Yeah. And, and that was us. So I'm sitting there in a glass box at night with the trees rustling outside in the dark, watching these Bigfoot movies, watching Peter Graves in the Mysterious Monsters talk about Exhibit Z, the footprints. Are they real? And I didn't know what a dramatization was. I didn't yeah, know what a yeah. recreation. All I knew was here's a... Here's a, a shot of a woman watching TV, like I'm watching TV, and suddenly a big hairy fist smashes through the window trying to grab her. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of that stuff. There was a lot. I just remember a lot of, you know, at, in my childhood, there was a lot, you know, in search of Noah's Ark. Yes. I mean, that, you know, uh, the Robert Stack show. Uh, what was Unsolved that? Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. And it, but there was just a lot of stuff aimed at kids about Loch Ness monster, at, you know, the cryptozoology kind of stuff, and and uh, there was a lot so, of that. And I didn't know that it was bullshit. 
Yeah. You know, it's it's like when the teacher said crack brings you up to 138. Oh, my God, yeah. he's using numbers. He must be right. So right. when Peter Graves, this tall, white-haired Gentile with his deep trust-me voice, yes. is interviewing a psychic detective, yes. and the detective is psychometrizing, and psychometrizing- He's psycho-whiting? Yeah, that was a real word. Peter Graves, and he says this in this voice, now I brought with me uh, something in a sealed box. Can you psychometrize what's inside? <laughs> and he brought him a plaster cast of a Bigfoot footprint. Now, maybe Peter Graves actually in that moment did not tell him. But I yeah. think if you're the psychic detective and the production assistant calls you and says, hey, listen, we're doing a show on Bigfoot. So Peter Graves is going to show up with a box with something inside it. Uh, yeah. We're not going to tell you what it is. I think he could figure it, be, it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's Bigfoot's hat. Yeah. Uh, but I believed it. Oh, my God. He's psychometrizing. Yeah. Now, did you write Bigfoot stuff then? I mean, obviously, the new project is Bigfoot, or has it just been sort of percolating in the background? It's been percolating all this time uh, because I, once again, took a fictional monster and asked myself a very basic question. Is this, if this was real, how would it exist? Yeah. No, no, no folklore, no, no myths. Basically, if there was a species of great ape in North America... How would it survive and what would I need to do to survive an attack? Yes. And I, well, and do you do you touch on like how how does it survive invisibly? You know, how does yes. it survive without anyone knowing where it is? I, I hit that from two angles. Uh, the idea that if because the, the, the mythos of Bigfoot is that it is descended from an actual great ape that existed, Gigantopithecus, which was a sort of a, a super ape from the Pleistocene era in Asia. So mm -hmm. if it migrated across the Bering Sea land bridge to North America, when we did, when humans did, uh, could it have adapted at the same time we did? Which is actually, this is, this is why in Africa you see very large mammals and why you don't see very large mammals living in Europe or North America or in large parts of Asia. And that's because, and this is true. What happens is when Homo sapiens came out of Africa for the first time, it was a blitzkrieg. The, the uh, animals had no idea what to expect from us. And yeah. they didn't know how to adapt. And boy, we just massacred them all the way down through the Americas. Whereas yeah. the, the what they call the megafauna, the large animals living in Africa, uh, they, they grew up with us. They evolved with us. So they evolved coping mechanisms to deal with us. So in my book, I postulate that these gigantopithecus apes that migrated with us to North America had the intelligence to be able to understand us, figure us out, and be able to avoid us in a way that, say, the saber-toothed cat and the American lion and, and the giant bear couldn't have. That's why they avoided being in the La Brea tar pits with all the other bones. Yeah, yeah. Or that big one that looks like a giant uh, uh, road hog, What's, or a, a giant kind of a warthog. Or, oh, yeah, the, the intelligence. Or groundhog, I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's oh, like a oh, huge, oh. like it, a huge ferret kind of creature. It looks like a <laughs> guinea pig. There's a bunch of these weird. Well, there's one. It, it, I don't. It's not an indrikathir. I can't remember the exact name, but it looks like a giant armadillo. Yeah, yeah. There's the. You go to the La Brea Tar Pits. I used to go all the time with my son when he was little, and that was part of my research was just learning about all these giant animals that were here. North America looked like Africa when we got here. Yeah. How do you start with the zombie uh, book? Do you, does it something? Do you think like 
what what made you think a survival guide? Was it just still sort of processing that anxiety you were feeling? I started with a very simple premise. Uh, I started, I'm 13 years old, and I'm doing what every 13-year-old in, in 1985 should be doing, which is sneaking into his parents' room when they're out to dinner to go on cable TV and try to find boobs. Yes. Uh, so I did that. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we scored, and but then I stumbled across an Italian cannibal zombie film, scared the crap out of me, and then spent. Well, the which next, film was that? Uh, do you want to? They plug keep it? changing the name, but it's Nightmare of the Zombies. I think it's like Revenge of the Zombies. Uh, yeah. It's an Italian special forces unit, which is a joke in itself. Uh, goes to New Guinea. <laughs> And they're attacked by zombies and they're doomed. It's a, it's a punishment doomed movie. And yeah, they, yeah. I think they used real cannibal footage from New Guinea documentaries. So, oh, wow. Yeah. To be 12 or 13, that leaves a mark. Wow. Uh, so then I spent years and years being scared of zombies. Scared, scared, yeah. scared. And then I see what a movie that scared everybody else, but that gave me hope, which was Night of the Living Dead. Because like you said, suddenly there were rules. Yeah. And all I had to do was figure out the rules in order to survive. Yeah. So I pivoted and spent years thinking, well, if there really were zombies, well, how would I do it? So flash forward, Blizzard of 96, graduate school. I'm in my basement apartment watching you and Conan and the Fresh Prince. (laughs) And my basement apartment had bars on the window and a steel door. And I thought, well, if zombies attacked, I am physically safe. But wait a minute. How much food can I stockpile? What about water? What about sewage? What about air? What about a first aid kit? So a mental exercise. Yeah. Which then years and years later when Y2K is happening and people are starting to think about survivalism, uh, I thought, well, there must be a zombie survival guide. All the stuff I've thought about, somebody must have written this down. And I went looking for it, couldn't find one. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write myself all the rules that I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. And I started researching them to make sure that I, I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Some of it was book, a lot of book learning, but some of it was personal experience. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of crazy hiking and camping and ROTC taught me about weapons. And I put it all into this manuscript that I thought, I will keep this for me. It'll be mine. Nobody will judge it and call me a loser and I'll stick it in a drawer. Yeah. And that was late nineties. Wow. And what, what prompts you to bring it out? Uh, knowing I was going to eventually be fired from SNL. <laughs> yeah, this looks, sounds pretty good. I think you know, it, yeah. Well, you know what? I don't, I don't have the luxury anymore of saying, yeah, well, this yeah. is my art. Now yeah, I have to say- this is my special precious yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you need to make a living to feed yourself, your precious little feelings are not yeah. part of the equation. That is very true. Very, very true. <laughs> Now, the book is a hit. I mean, are you surprised by that? Oh, God. You can still YouTube my very first zombie lecture. Because when the book, like we said, when the book came out, it got panned. I mean, the, the, the LA Times wrote the most scathing review ever, saying basically, like, why would the son of Mel Brooks write the least funny book ever written? Oh. But that's not his fault. Because clearly- Well, it also, it's like- it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with you, that no. critique. It's like, you know, uh, it, it, but anyway. But somebody clear, somebody at Random House uh, clearly gave him this book as a comedy book. Yeah. 
So why would they slam me? And then the horror nerds really slammed me because they thought Mel Brooks's brat was taking a giant dump on everything that they loved, which yeah, yeah. is how the marketing campaign had positioned it. Yeah. So other than Comic-Con, what dug me out of the hole was doing zombie lectures around the country at colleges. Uh-huh. And my very first one, I think it's on YouTube still, I'm flop sweating like Albert Brooks in broadcast news. And I thought, all right, I'm going to, I've done my lecture. Now I'm going to open the floor up to questions. And I thought, okay, they've suffered through my little pet project. Yeah. Now they're going to ask me about my dad or about maybe working on SNL, you know, the, the yeah. stuff they really care about. Right. And sure enough, the questions were, well, if I like, if I get bitten on the arm, how long do I have to cut my arm off before the infection reaches my heart and zombifies me? And I thought, oh my God. I'm not the only one in the world that thinks about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, See, but there's yeah. there is something. It it uh, because uh, there is something sort of I think, uh, just defending the people and me being one of them that that sort of think of the the first book as kind of a comic book is it's it, there's in, something inherently comic about taking all of this stuff seriously, about like really planning for you know if a werewolf comes in here, I mean, there is something that's because it's absurd. Yes. You know, you know what I mean? So it is, but it's wonderfully absurd. And it is like, it does, it's, it's such a, all of, you know, of this is just such a nice kind of, uh, map of how your brain works, which is very, very orderly and very sort of, you know, linear and, 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 incredibly thorough, you know? And I mean, that's like, because World War Z, we're, I, I, I've told so many people, like, it is one of the most devourable books I've ever read. Just, just chomp, chomp, chomp. Couldn't get through. And it was just, like I say, just the, I loved how many different aspects of, well, what happens? How would it happen? How would it spread? How would, the, you know, yeah. who would be the heroes? Where would there be different sort of showdowns? How would India handle it? How would, you know, Europe handle it? And it's, it's, you know, and I always, Conan was always impressed because I told him once I can't, because I said, it, and it's just something I lifted from you is like, just go North, go where it's cold. <laughs> right. You know, they'll just end up freezing, you know, when nightfall comes, they just stand there freezing and you can go up and just knock them into bits with a sledgehammer, you know? And Therefore, your big enemy is not zombies. Your big enemy is winter. So how yeah. do you survive the winter? Right, right. Yeah. This is, this is how I write, is I yeah. just keep answering my own questions. I start with, like you said, with a question. How would this happen? And then one question leads to bigger questions. Like you said, how would India handle this? Would the government of India be different than China? So I based my zombie virus coming out of China on SARS. Because everything I do, I take years of research and SARS had just happened. And I thought, well, if I have a zombie virus, I need a large population. I need an infrastructure. You know, I need trains and planes to carry the, the disease. But I also need a government that's willing to suppress the truth because it couldn't start in India or Mexico because one intrepid reporter would blow the lid off it. You yeah. need a government that's willing to sit on the truth. And sure enough, the SARS outbreak validated that. And so did this new COVID-19 outbreak. Yeah, 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 and there's a there's a few a few governments willing to suppress. It turns out it's like it's not an uncommon no. thing. It's all the people that uh, that are handling it poorly are are the ones covering yeah. it up. Yeah. Um. Well, that so. 
at a certain point, all right, do you reach a point where you're like, all right, enough zombies. I've, I'm, uh, it's done. I've thought enough. I've, got, I've figured out every angle. Well, you know, I think I am possibly the world's worst businessman uh, because I always have to write from a point of view of passion, which yeah. sounds great. You know, from an artistic point of view, if we lived, sure. in, you know, if we lived in Siena, Italy, in the Renaissance, I'd be the man. But yeah, yeah, the idiocy of writing a zombie book and having it hit so big and then not following it up with a sequel is yeah. just unforgivable. I mean, yeah, what? Yeah. What? Are, but the truth is, if I'm not passionate, I can't do it. Yeah, I, I either have to be a hundred percent into it and just obsessive and deep, deep, deep or else what's the point? I can't half ass yeah. it. Uh, so, and, and I, I, I may be done with zombies for the rest of my life. I may not be, but I have answered the questions that I had asked. That you myself. asked yourself. Yes. Yeah. That you were asking yourself. Yeah. I think that that, because if you do, and it's just going to, I, you know, I mean, it, it, there's, you can name many examples of somebody that, had a an initial really great work of something and then to kind of get a payday sort of like well i guess i could sort of yeah you know make more out out of it like yeah i could like you know we could you know take the bones of this story and boil them up into some broth and i could make another meal out of it and then it just ends up being almost devaluing and sort of an insult to the original project. So, yeah. And, and if I knew, if I knew how to anticipate what people wanted, I mean, first of all, they wouldn't have fired me off SNL, but I have no idea what's going to be popular and what's not. I don't know. Some writers can do that and God bless them. I'm so jealous, but I can only write for me. I can only write for the audience of one because then at least I know somebody's liking it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's worked, so you it gives you a little bit of validation, at least, to trust that voice going forward. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. the new Bigfoot book that's coming out, I have no idea if anybody's going to read it. I don't know if anybody likes uh, Bigfoot the way I like it, or certainly the way I write about it, but this was the kind of story I've always wanted to tell. So yeah. as long as I don't regret it, then it's it's a life worth lived, I think. Yeah. What's the title of the book? Devolution. And it is, the title is what, what it says. It starts with a high-end, high-tech eco-community in the Cascade Mountains. And these are not off-the-grid hippies. These, these, this, they are the grid. Uh, this is telecommuting. This is solar panels. This is tap on your phone and get drone deliveries, fresh direct groceries from Seattle. These, these are the high-end people who will get up every day and rule the world uh, from their beautiful enclave. And then they'll go for a walk in the woods and yeah. it's working until yeah. Mount Rainier erupts and cuts them off. And not only are they cut off, they're forgotten because Rainier blows in the direction of Seattle and they're on the other side. So nobody's uh-huh. even looking for them. So this little bedroom community of very highly paid, highly educated David Sedaris fans can't change a light bulb. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- this is the top of the, of the pyramid. And suddenly the pyramid's upside down. And, and their communication is broken down. Com- and it, they can't communicate. Yeah. yeah. They can't even call for help. Yeah. Uh, and they've got, what, what, maybe a week's worth of Amazon do- groceries that are, are running out and winter is coming. 
Yeah. And they have no tools. Why? Because the, these are smart homes. These homes send a signal to a handyman in town who'll come up with a driverless van. But now huh. the, the town is destroyed below them. So if that's not bad enough, the eruption has driven a pack of very big, very hungry Sasquatch creatures out of their traditional hunting grounds. And winter's coming for them too. And they got to yeah. stock up on calories. And here comes a pen of sheep. So it is essentially, essentially Ira Glass and Fran Lebowitz versus Bigfoot. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not a fair that's not a fair fight. Well, uh, they have to devolve. These people they have to adapt. Yeah. That's great. That's great. I can't wait to read it. Um and uh and I think I think we're gonna schedule this to be to coincide so it'll be easy to find the book. Um, you know, we had to talk about adaptation. We had to delay the book because for me, the audiobook is very important. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it almost, I think more important than the actual book. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we had to delay it cause we couldn't get the cast in the studio. Ah, uh, so we have spent the last two months, uh, rejiggering our homes to make home studios. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, I, boy, I'm doing my Harry Potter impression under my stairs. <laughs> um well uh you know but this this podcast is it's uh about where you've been and what you've learned yeah. and this is sort of the uh or when uh, where you're going let's get to that first i mean what's the next obsession or do we have more uh is there more sasquatch in the future or are you are, are you and sasquatch done i don't know I really don't know. I, I'll tell you right now, this this disease, this pandemic is all engrossing right now. Mm -hmm. And where I'm going is I have to rediscover the education my mother gave me about viruses and yeah. the, the history of viruses. Because I'll tell you one thing, I think one of the reasons that this thing got out of control was that we are victims of our own success. I, I think that we have evolved so much as a society that even our grandparents today grew up with vaccines. Yeah. So we don't yeah. respect microbes the way my father's generation did. Yeah. You know, the idea that my grandmother used to scream at me for going outside with wet hair because you'd catch cold and die when she was a little girl. Yeah, yeah. Those days are way in the rear view mirror. And I don't mm -hmm. think we have that muscle memory. So I'm trying to re-educate people. I'm doing a little thing for the History Channel, History at Home. So I'm doing little vignettes about like the man who taught us to wash our hands, Ignaz Semmelweis, and a man named Joseph Lister who taught doctors to actually wash everything. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think we need to rediscover the respect of germs if we're going to fight them. And that's got to be where my head is right now. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of, is that sort of what you've learned too? I mean, I mean, is there anything, you know, I imagine there should be something in there about being nice to each other. Oh God, I always, well, I mean, that's always a helpful one. Well, what I've what I've learned is what I've been learning since I was a little kid, and every little kid around me could read, and I couldn't. Which is, you have to adapt. Uh, you have to change, and that's I th I think that's been the way we've been going for some time. But I think this disease has really sort of kicked it on to a whole new level, because you know for for. Hundreds of years, our education model, our military model, it's all been along what's called the Prussian lines, which is uh, memorization, take information in, 
hold it in your head just long enough to vomit it out onto a standardized time test, and then you move up a level, right? That was school. Yeah. Well, and, and forget everything that you've that and, you've regurgitated. Yeah. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to analyze it. You sure as hell don't have to connect it to anything else. You just yeah. put in a little box, you know, spat it out. You're done. Move up. Which, by the way, isn't that how video games are? There's only one way to solve a problem, and then you solve it, and then you go to the next level. Yeah. Well, that's not life. Yeah. What what life, especially now, the way technology and globalization and economics, the way it's changed the world is. You have to be a thinker. You have to be an innovator. And most importantly, you have to be able to pick yourself up when you fail. Yeah. I mean, boy, if I've learned that, I mean, I'm, I'm the king of getting punched in the face by life. Yeah. You, you have to reinvent. You dyslexic kid who could barely get through school. Then I finally get through it. And then I can't get a job as a screenwriter. Then I right. finally break in. Oh, my God, SNL. Then they fire my ass. Then I have a yeah. book coming out. But it's marketed wrong. So I have yeah, to, I yeah, can't. yeah, yeah. So my life has always been having to reinvent and to figure out how to get around life's Maginot line. Yeah. Well, uh, I think you've done a pretty good job. I mean, you know, I think so. I don't. I know there's a lot of people that probably don't. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't really my, know them. My, my teachers certainly, certainly wouldn't. <laughs> my my one teacher who said you. And when I said, I can't do this, and she would say, well, you can do it. You just don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course I don't. Right. I, right. I, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love this. Is so the, where I'm at right now is so much fun. Yeah. It, it's yeah. great being 11 years old and feeling like a complete idiot while every other kid in the class races past me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. Well, Devolution is the new book. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm certainly going to read it. Um and Max Brooks, thank you so much uh, for for coming on the show. Tell your dad I said hi. Uh, are you at least getting to see him, or do you see him sort of, you know, you know we, distance? Once again, distance. we have to adapt. I don't know if you you saw. I did this little video with my dad about. Yeah, uh, I did. I did. You're outside the house. Yeah. Well, that was real. That's not that's not for the cameras. Uh, I have not hugged my dad since this started, and. Uh, we go over to his house. We go over so my son can go swim in the pool, but he can't yeah. hug his grandfather. So my dad sits on one side of the of the window. We sit on the other. If he opens the, the door, we talk through the screen. We have to move back even farther. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I wasn't kidding when I said it's this disease is not just about me getting infected. If I infect him, he infects Carl Reiner, who infects Dick Van Dyke. I wipe out a whole generation of comedians. <laughs> wow! Yeah, national treasures. You'd you know, you would be you would be like a it would be terrible. It, right. You'd be a villain. Yeah, I, I'd be a comedy mass assassin. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, a lot of pressure to stay home, yeah. uh, and I'm glad that you took some of the time at home to talk to me. Thank you so much. And everybody go out and get Max's book. And uh, we will uh, be back with you uh, next week with more of the three questions. Bye-bye. Thanks. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galitza Hayek, and engineered by Will Beckton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production. 
in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.